the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Um. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed it is. And hour number two is underway at 10 minutes past 10 o'clock on AM 1420. The answer. Thank you so much for joining us. It is indeed the Wednesday morning, the 10th morning of the fourth month of the year of our Lord 2019. And history has been made for the very first time. The United States has labeled a military of a foreign government a foreign terrorist organization. Unprecedented and, of course, I think richly earned and deserved. Talking about the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps along with the Quds forces. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made this announcement, said it's intended to increase, increase pressure on Iran isolating it further and diverting some of the financial resources it uses to fund terrorism and military uh, activity in the Middle East and beyond it. Uh, so it's an enormous step, and uh, I don't can't think of too many people who are better equipped uh, to analyze this than our friend Ryan Morrow. Ryan is the uh, director of uh, uh, intelligence for the Clarion Project. He is also the national security analyst for the Clarion Project, online at clarionproject.org, the Shillman Fellow with Clarion as well. Ryan, good to have you back on the air here in Cleveland, my friend. How are you, sir? Doing very well. It's great to be talking with you. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. Okay, so there, in, in fact, I have a lot of ground to cover with you in addition to this designation of a foreign terrorist organization. We're going to talk about care. We're going to talk about Hamas. We're going to talk about Ilhan Sharia. I mean, Ilhan Omar. That'll be coming up in a moment. But, Ryan, uh, first, what does this mean? And why do you think it took so long? I saw uh, another report that we were close to doing this uh, about 30 years ago. And uh, while the discussion was held uh, to, to designate Iran and Iran's military as a foreign terrorist organization, it was never done until President Trump and his administration did it. Why now? Right. Well, it's because the Trump administration is basically trying to find every possible avenue to sanction Iran, but also to scare off foreign investors from the Iranian marketplace. So the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps doesn't always call themselves 
the Iranian Revolutionary Guards for. They operate construction companies, oil companies, all, all sorts of companies. They're basically a mafia that controls the majority of the Iranian economy. And so by designating them as a foreign terrorist organization, basically what you're doing is, among other things, is you're, you're raising the risk for any investor that may not realize they're dealing with the Revolutionary Guards uh, and so they could lose their investment. They could be sanctioned themselves. And so what business person is going to want to take that risk? Really none that are wise. Uh, furthermore, it also adds criminal penalties to anyone around the world who gives material aid knowingly to the Revolutionary Guards Corps. So in theory, uh, you can have a Revolutionary Guards operative in France or, or somewhere like that, and we could arrest them, have the host government arrest them, and then send them over to the United States or anyone who assists that operative. So uh, it gives it, it really gives us some leverage overseas, um, aside from the obvious clarity of saying, look, this is not a typical military force. This is a terrorist force. It, it's different from, like, the military of India or something like that. Ryan Morrow joining us. Ryan is the chairman of the Clarion Intelligence Network. Um, what, do you have any updates on what Iran has been up to recently? And I don't mean specifically uh, their hidden nuclear uh, uh, weapons program and everything else that, uh, you know, of course, we, we discussed when the United States and when President Trump pulled out of that. But I mean, in terms of we call them the world's largest sponsor of terror. We don't always see headlines about terror acts that have been paid for or been sponsored by or carried out by Iranian forces, at least of late. Can you tell us whether or not they have ramped things up, maybe that do not make the news um, since we broke the nuclear deal off with them and whether or not that has anything to do with how they operate? Yeah, the reason you don't hear about that is because for something to be news, it has to be new. N-E-W. I mean, it's, it's in the word news. And the typical Iranian proxies in Iraq, in Lebanon, and elsewhere, uh, they are doing what they've been doing at such a force that people don't talk about it because that's now daily life. So uh, they have increased operations in places like Iraq and Yemen. They're more forcefully trying for the Iraqi government to essentially expel U.S. forces from Iraq. So a lot of their attention has been going there. Afghanistan, their role is underplayed. Uh, when you look at information that's been leaked, it, it's very apparent that Iran is helping the Taliban and other terrorists in Afghanistan to kill our soldiers to a degree that uh, most people used to think it was minor, and, and it's actually really very major. A lot of the Revolutionary Guards, of course, is trying to keep the regime in power now because the protests in Iran that continue to happen, that's also no longer news because it a sustaining force now. They're just always going on, so people stop paying attention to it. So uh, for the Iranian people facing down the Revolutionary Guards, they're a bit of a victim of their own success. Uh, because if you're protesting every day, then after a week, unless something dramatic happens, it's no longer news and it's not getting global attention. Uh, the other point I'd make is that this is a great precedent, uh, the idea of designating intelligence services and certain military branches as terrorist groups when they are, because uh, I, I would move forward and start talking about Pakistan's intelligence service. I mean, that essentially is a terrorist organization. That, uh, please follow up on that, then, and tell us how that impacts us or our allies. Sure. So Pakistan is responsible more than pretty much any other force for killing 
troops in uh, in Afghanistan and really globally, because the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI, is duplicitous even against the Pakistani government. It's almost like their own entity. Um, and they have a specific element called the S-Wing, if you wanted to narrow it down and say just designate part of the Pakistani intelligence service, that is in charge of all these Pakistani-backed jihadist groups that appear to be independent, but they're really kind of coordinated from the top. And what we've got to do, if we want to win this battle around the world, is really kind of stop looking at the terrorist groups themselves and look at the governments and intelligence services that sponsor them. Because a lot of this is a mirage. These aren't just non-state actors. These are proxies of certain governments that have decided to create them, sustain them, and empower them, and give themselves some form of deniability. And as long as that's allowed to go on, I don't really know how much success we're going to have in the war on terrorism, the war on Islamic extremism, because you're not getting at the factory producing the terrorist groups. We're talking to Ryan Morrow, the National Security Analyst at the Clarion Project, Shillman Fellow at the Clarion Project, which is online at clarionproject.org. I could sit here and let you educate us on these Middle East uh, 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 militaries that are terror organizations uh, all day long, but I have a lot of other ground to cover with you. So, Ryan, let me pivot now to Ilhan Omar. You retweeted, by the way, uh, something from Donald Trump Jr., uh, yesterday, which was um, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted, normalizing and even elevating an anti-Semite is a new low even for Newsweek. It's been a shame to see a once decent publication devolve into a clickbait rag. And he's talking about the cover story on Ilhan Omar, how Ilhan Omar is changing the conversation about Israel and upending the 2020 campaign. Now, absorb that, Ryan, along with audio that uh, kind of became... Uh, known to most yesterday, it was kind of uncovered, back in March, Ilhan Omar speaking to CARE in Los Angeles, um, talking specifically about what happened in New Zealand, which of course was an atrocity, but describing along the way in casual dismissive terms the Muslim terror attack on the United States on 9-11. Give this a listen. So to me, I say raise hell, make people uncomfortable. Because here's the truth, here's the truth, far too long we have lived with the discomfort of being a second-class citizen. And frankly, I'm tired of it, and every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it. (laughs) CARE was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. All right, Ron, I've given you a lot to uh, unpack there, but between her anti-Semitism, as pointed out by Donald Trump Jr., and her anti-Israel stances, as pointed out by so many others, including Newsweek through this strange uh, story that they did on her, and now she is speaking to care and proclaiming that 9-11 was some people did some things. Um, Do we have a foreign terrorist sympathizer, at the very least, sitting in the United States Congress? (laughs) I don't want to go so far as to make that accusation because I just want firmer evidence before I say that, but I will say that there are indications that leave me very troubled to think what she may be saying and doing in private. Uh, Because, especially for a politician, but people in general... The stuff you say publicly 
is a far cry from what you're actually saying and thinking in private. Uh, it's, it's very sanitized. So if what's coming out of your mouth in a sanitized environment is things like being having a dismissal dismissive tone about 9-11, and you combine that with the anti-Semitism and, and the proportionality of our Twitter account focusing on bashing Israel, anti-Semitic conspiracies, and these other issues, when there's so much to tackle, it points in a very disturbing direction. And there, she's praising the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, which your audience knows has long-standing links to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, but she claims they were formed after 9-11, as if they were a defensive organization to exactly. stop the U.S. government. So, is she lying? I don't think so. What that means is, is that when it comes to... Well, well hold on, hold on, hold on, if you would, if you would, Ryan, please. I'm sorry, she is lying, right? I mean, because CARE's own website declares they were founded in 1994. She's trying to make it sound like they were founded right after 9-11, as you said, as a defense against attacks on Muslims because of what happened on 9-11. It was founded, uh, it was founded seven years before 9-11 even took place. CARE is an organization, and as you pointed out, with deep roots and ties to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood and others. She just flat out lied. Well, she, she's wrong. I don't know if that means that she's lying, because I've, seen, I've had congressional staffers and people that just think that. They assume all these so-called civil rights organizations just erupted after 9-11. It's, an, it's a common assumption, but what that means for me is, and it's not really a thing to lie about. I don't see the benefit of lying about it. So I think she's wrong, but being wrong about it is equally disturbing. So you think she was misinformed on it, maybe? She didn't, know when it was, she didn't know when it was founded, is what you're saying. She didn't care to know. That's okay. the problem. Okay. So when it comes to any issue regarding the Islamic world or an Islamist organization, she's not even taking the steps to get the basic facts because she's so she's just so biased in her agenda. That's not her focus. Her focus is on making it sound like the U.S. government is rounding up Muslims, threatening their lives uh, because of Islamophobia, downplaying 9-11, and bashing Israel and Jews for everything. Ryan, it's, uh, I'm glad you clarified that, and I apologize for the interruption. It's, it's so aggravated because she's speaking to CARE at a CARE event in Los Angeles. One would think she knows all about CARE and when CARE was founded, and she's advancing a lie, it seemed to me, to try to make it look as though they had this organization, wonderful as it is, had to, to found itself, had to, to exist in order to protect Muslims from the attacks of people who were angry about what happened when some people did some things, as she declared, about 9-11, which is just incomprehensible to me uh let me get what a quick time out. ever refers to 9-11 that way oh my god anyone not even the most drunk guy at a bar like i've never heard anyone in the most casual setting refer to 9-11 that way it would be like a friend of mine on twitter during uh, my last segment tweeted uh you know ilhan omar's uh, uh uh history uh it would be like describing the moon landing in 1969 as some guys went somewhere uh, that, that, right? I mean, that, that's, that's how unbelievable. Exactly, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible. Ryan, let me get a quick time out. I want to come back and let you rant about something that you, uh, refrained from ranting about on Twitter yesterday. People will have to wait and see what that means coming up next, right here on AM 1420. The Alright, 10.26. I don't have a lot of time left with Ryan Morrow here, so I want to dive right in here. Ryan Morrow, the, uh, uh, national security analyst for the Clarion Project. Um, Ryan, you tweeted yesterday, 
that you were resisting a temptation to go on a rant about Saddam's WMD capabilities. Yes, Iraq was linked to Islamic terrorists. He was no longer a secular dictator. Things might have been worse than today if we had left him in power. And what if General Wayne Downing's plan was followed? This, of course, because yesterday was the anniversary of the fall of Saddam, April 9, 2003. So uh, I'm going to give you the next four minutes to go on the rant that you didn't go on on Twitter. I would like to know your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, it really frustrates me, especially because I see Iraqis and especially Kurds celebrating the fall of Saddam um, and certain anniversaries, such as when the statue fell or when his regime fell, and you and you can see why they're so happy. And then people just start criticizing it, and my frustration stems from the lack of nuance in public opinion, where because they're disappointed with the lack of WMD stockpiles that were found and the course of the Iraq War, that they go in the complete opposite direction, and now all of a sudden Saddam really wasn't that bad of a guy. We shouldn't have taken action against him. And it's like there's a, a healthy, accurate spot in the middle. And so what I'm reacting to is specifically the WMD issue is, well, yes, we were told that there were stockpiles there, um, and we did not find massive stockpiles. Maybe some went to Syria. I, I don't know, but it actually doesn't matter. Uh, for me, as a national security analyst, if I'm looking at a threat and there's a government that has a uh, history of using WMD, of targeting the United States, I think the only government on Earth that openly celebrated 9-11, and you know they have WMD programs, which were found. We, the ability to quickly produce chemical and biological weapons in a matter of weeks, that's not much different than having stockpiles. In fact, if you're going to covertly attack the United States, it's not going to be military-type stockpiles. It's going to be coming from a lab that produces them over a series of weeks. And the Iraqi intelligence service was found to have such labs. So there's not a big difference there. As for the connection to al-Qaeda and other terrorists, if you look at some of the documents that came out that were found, and many documents, in fact, most of them were burned and destroyed by Saddam's regime as we came in. So the worst stuff we're not going even even going to know about. But of the stuff that we know about, uh, if you look up something called the Iraqi Perspective Project, where they went through tens of thousands of documents, they concluded, yes, actually there was a connection between Saddam and al-Qaeda and other jihadists. Some people say that's not true because he was supposedly a secular dictator. That's also not true. After the Gulf War, he began instituting elements of Sharia law. His top regime officials basically became jihadist in their beliefs, in their system of governance. They called it the Return to Faith Campaign. They had annual conferences where jihadists would come in and meet together. And so that's why it's not surprising that when Saddam's regime fell, these so-called secular dictators suddenly became ISIS. It's not because we pushed them there. It's because that's who they were. And they fell, and they continued acting like al-Qaeda and ISIS because they were already basically at that point. Not quite, but they were comfortable enough with the ideology that they joined and created those branches of the terrorist organization for al-Qaeda and ISIS. So it, it, it is frustrating for me to see some of these misconceptions out there. Totally understand opposing the war, saying it's not worth it, but let's not whitewash Saddam, and let's not learn the wrong lessons from what happened. I can see why you didn't want to rant on Twitter. That would have taken a heck of a lot of 280-character 200, uh, messages. And and by the way, it still, in my opinion, doesn't scratch the surface. Next time I have you on, 
I would love to ask you what changed, why, and how did he go from secular to being more uh, Sharia compliant, to being more jihadist in nature, uh, and so on and so forth. Because you're right, everybody talked about him being a secular force uh, in the Middle East and keeping a balance there, and that did not maintain throughout his um, his uh, reign of power. Uh, so I would love to talk a little bit more about that as we continue the next time around. Ryan Morrow, uh, chairman of the Clarion Intelligence Network, a national security analyst at the Clarion Project, the Shulman fellow there as well. Follow his great work on uh, social media, Twitter and Facebook at Ryan Morrow, M-A-U-R-O. Ryan, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for the time. All right, thank you. You got it. It's 1031. We're going to take a timeout on the other side of the timeout. Tom Z makes his return. Tom Z, Tom Zawistowski, uh, the uh, president of the uh, Portage County Tea Party, is going to be joining us. Uh, the uh, president of the We the People Network is going to be joining us to talk about the 10th anniversary of the Tea Party. It was born in 2009, one year after Barack Obama was elected. Is it still viable? Is it still forceful? Does it still have any place in the, uh, uh, in the uh, Republican messaging? In the Republican infrastructure, we'll talk about that with Tom Z going uh, going forward right after this on AM fourteen twenty the dot com. Ten thirty seven. Now we continue on AM fourteen twenty the answer. Thanks again to my two previous great guests, Ryan Morrow from the Clarion Project and Congressman Jim Jordan from Capitol Hill. And uh, I've struck it lucky because i got three great guests today. Tom Zdawistowski, back with us on AM 1420, The Answer. Tom is the uh, president of the We the People Convention and the Ohio Citizens PAC. He's also the executive director, as I noted before, of the Portage County Tea Party and past president of the Ohio Liberty Coalition. That's a lot of titles. It's one hell of a big business card he must carry around. Tom Zdawistowski, uh, on the anniversary or approaching the anniversary uh, the 10th anniversary of the Tea Party. Hey, Tom, good to have you. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm well. Thanks for having me on to talk about this exciting event because it's really important to, to, to look back over the last 10 years and, and to see what has the Tea Party really done, not, not for ourselves, but for America. And I think it's a pretty impressive record. I do, too. And I want to do two things here, Tom, as a part of this conversation. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to... I'm going to expect that this conversation is going to actually go beyond today, and I might have you back on very soon to talk more about this, because I want to talk about the past, the accomplishments, the origin, the genesis of the Tea Party, and then I want to look to, look to the future and find out about its relevance. Uh, so we might not be able to do all of that today. It's relevance going forward into the 2020 election and beyond. But let's start uh, start talking about what happened in, t- uh, in 2009. Uh, shortly after Barack Obama was elected president and declared that he was going to fundamentally transform this country and instantly hit us with a massive uh, stimulus plan that was going to raise taxes, and uh, in my estimation, and as it bo- uh, you know, a situation was was born out to be true, was not going to revive and revitalize our economy. Um, the Tea Party was born. Talk about how that began. Well, you're exactly right. Uh, President Obama came into office, uh, started talking about uh, cap and tax, started talking about Obamacare, you know, government single payer health care, and then you know he really had this trillion dollar stimulus. And many of your listeners may remember a guy named Rick Santelli uh, from the Chicago Board of Trade had a rant on CNBC where he called for a, a new Tea Party uh, movement and. Somehow that just struck a nerve, and and that you know that information. Remember, this is ten years ago, Bob. So Twitter, Facebook, those things didn't exist. 
But somehow that you know really you know, took hold. And on April 15th of 2009, a few weeks, he, he made his rant in February. On April 15th of 2009, um, there were 350 protests, rally type events across America where over a million people uh, came out and said, we're against what the government is doing. And, Bob, I think you were with us. We were in Cleveland, uh, uh, in downtown Cleveland, for, yes. uh, for the first one. And that's where the Tea Party, you know, the modern-day Tea Party started. But, of course, the whole idea of the Tea Party started during the Revolutionary War. And, uh, and that's why you know, we're kind of celebrating the modern Tea Party, the founding of the modern Tea Party. Tom, uh, did, did the Tea Party acronym actually mean, because I don't know if this was actually intended or if people just started making this up on signs when they would go to rallies. Did TEA stand for Taxing Off Already in addition to, of course, the modern Tea Party referencing the Boston Tea Party? Yeah, I think it's important for your listeners to, to understand that the Tea Party has evolved over these 10 years. And when we started, it was TEA, Taxed Enough Already. And our mm-hmm. focus was on taxes, was on the debt, was on fiscal issues. And a lot of that had to do, Bob, with the fact that there were a lot of established Republican, we call them infiltrating the Tea Party at that time, and trying to push us in that direction. And at that, at the beginning of the Tea Party movement, there was really no involvement with social issues, nothing with life, nothing with marriage, nothing with you know the attacks on our First Amendment, things like that. But over the years, uh, our Tea Party, uh, and we changed it from TEA, meaning not taxed enough already, but totally engaged Americans. Because what we found was that the solutions to our problems weren't just tax issues and weren't just fiscal issues. We had issues that you know involved just literally integrity and government being fair and honest and equal justice under the law. So we kind of went from tax enough already to you know totally engaged Americans. Which again, uh, we'll talk more about coming up um, going forward. Are we still totally engaged Americans? That's a question that we're going to have to talk about as far as the Tea Party's impact. But let's let's continue to look back now. Uh, you know, the birth in two thousand nine to some of the accomplishments. I'm looking, and I encourage people to go to the website wethepeopleconvention.org, which is of course yours, uh, Tom. And it's got some of the highlights. It's got some of the accomplishments of the Tea Party uh, in the ten years that it has been in existence. And I'm going to let you kind of highlight a few of those, Tom. Yeah, and I I want to make the point to everyone listening that the Tea Party is a very unique movement in two ways. First of all, we have never advocated for anything that benefits us. We've never asked the government or anyone to give us anything. We've always fought for freedom and liberty for all Americans. And second of all, our, our movement is not a single issue. You know, it's a lot easier. I mean, I, 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 you know, we're big sports of the NRA, but it's really great if you just have to fight for gun rights. It's really great if you're a pro-life group and you just have to fight for life. But the Tea Party got in. We get involved with all the issues, whether it be tax levies or what have you. And our record of achievement is great. And as you said on our website, wethepeopleconvention.org, they can read the list. But it started, Bob, it really started in 2010 when you know, you, this last November, the left and the Democrats celebrated that they won 28 House seats. But don't forget that in 2010, Barack Obama was president, the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate, and they had this radical agenda that was going to transform America. And the Tea Party elected 63 new House members, the most since 1928, to stop 
that agenda. And that was when the Tea Party really showed that we were real and that we were a political force. Tom Zawistowski is our guest, the executive director of the Portage County Tea Party, <clears throat> excuse me, and the president of the We the People uh, Convention. And I'm looking at that website again. You should check it out. It's wethepeopleconvention.org as we look at some of these highlights uh, of the Tea Party and some of the things that, that have been done. Now, th- those first you know few years were obviously the most important because, as you pointed out, the 63-seat victory in 2010 to stop the agenda. Then uh, nine Republicans were elected to take back the Senate in 2014, something that is crucial today because here we are in 2019 and if it weren't for that uh, uh you know that uh that that fail safe if you will in the senate my goodness gracious lord only knows what the uh pelosi house of representatives would be able to do to donald trump if they had control of the senate as well so while those formative years and those first few years were extraordinarily important um it's it's just as important right now for the Tea Party, in my opinion, to uh, to have their agenda and their policies advanced by uh, you know by our by our elected officials on Capitol Hill right now. How much influence, in your opinion, does the Tea Party have today on uh, Capitol Hill? The way we obviously influenced them back in uh, in 2010 and 2014. Well, a lot of people forget because you know over 10 years, a lot of things happened. But Mike Pence, who's now the VP, was elected by the Tea Party initially. Mick Mulvaney, who I think is one of the strongest people in the president's sphere in Washington, is the current acting chief of staff and budget director. Mike Pompeo, who's a terrific secretary of state, was a Tea Party guy. And you just had, I think, the most important, the, the, the the biggest success. Uh, and that's Jim Jordan, who helped found the Freedom Caucus and who has fought with us and stood with us, particularly during the really tough times with the IRS targeting the Tea Party. And, and look at the impact they're having. So, you know, what has happened is all these movements these, that started as protest movements evolved. And we learned. I mean, Bob, let me tell you, we got taken to school in the early days. I mean, we, we were fooled into electing people like John Kasich and Rob Portman and things that we greatly regret, okay? We elected those people, and they turned their backs on us. So it took a while for us to figure out, just like President Trump is tagging a while to figure out how to not get played by the establishment. But now, I think we're more effective and more efficient, and I think the proof of that was the election this year in Ohio, where the Tea Party did very, very well helping Republicans hold uh, their congressional seats and, and, and all the state offices. And I think, uh, you know, you, you can see it in, in the fact that the, the Tea Party elected Donald Trump in 2016, and that's, that's just a fact. There is no Donald Trump if there was no Tea Party. There's no way that the country would have been ready to elect Donald Trump unless we educated them on all the things that were wrong and what our government was doing to we the people over uh, the previous you know, Obama administration. So that's a pretty strong you know, record right there, I think. Yeah, I don't disagree. Uh, not at all. Um... But what I want to add, I mean, while you correctly uh, identify Pompeo and Jordan and some of the other success stories that we have had um, in, in Mulvaney and getting Tea Party-supported individuals uh, into office and into very important positions of influence and power, uh, I have to ask about what happened back in November, uh, 49. You know, we're celebrating the 63 we picked up in 2010. Democrats turned around and got 49 House seats in November. Um is that a reflection of the Tea Party's power to still win elections, or is there something something more to that, Tom Zawasowski? Well, I think that, you know there there is the crux of the problem. Uh, we you know, the Tea Party has learned in these ten years that the Republican establishment 
isn't isn't really Republican. And and I think you probably saw the video that J.D. Vance did with Tucker Carlson, uh, where where he talked about how the Democrats have embraced their Hollywood environmentalist, uh, you know, uh, you know, the people who support them, the, the you know, the, the social justice warriors. The Republicans have rejected the people who support Donald Trump, and so we didn't lose the House in last year in 2018. Paul Ryan lost the House. They intentionally lost the House. The Republican establishment is trying to stop Donald Trump. And our problem, and, and the, the challenge that I face and other Tea Party leaders, is trying to get President Trump to understand that we've got to stop electing the enemy. He's got to stop endorsing people who hate his guts. We've got to stop having senators. You know, why, would, why in God's name would Donald Trump endorse Mitt Romney in Utah? When, when a good guy, Mitt Romney couldn't even win the Republican primary outright, that there was another guy running who kept him from winning it outright. They had to have a runoff. And then he gets convinced by the Washington establishment, oh, let's endorse Mitt Romney. Right after McCain dies, you elect a guy who hates as much as John McCain did. That's our problem. We need to start electing people who are for the people, and we can't really do that because of the money involved unless we can get the president to help us. And we saw that last year with uh, uh, you know, Christina Hagan and Melanie Lenigan, two great congressional candidates in Ohio, but we couldn't get the president to endorse them, and instead we elected people who we don't think uh, back his agenda and our agenda as much as we would like. You know, I, uh, I I totally agree with what you're saying in terms of, you know, why would the president endorse a Romney or somebody else who's not conservative, not truly, you know, Tea Party supported and so on and so forth. Um, but in a lot of races, there aren't primary candidates to, you know, who are better. Uh, and I don't know who else was out there in, uh, uh, in Utah when, when Romney won that, but when it comes down to the general election, and he gives endorsements. I mean, right? It's better to have somebody that's Rhino, Republican, Romney, and maybe might give me a vote or two in a crucial time that I'm going to need or that we need, uh, as opposed to a Democrat who's going to give me a no every single time. I mean, right? I mean, there, there's there's a balancing yeah. act to play. See, and that's exactly right. You know, and boy, you talk to Tea Party people. You know, that whole lesser of two evil stuff. It's really old because they're really both evil, and we don't. We're tired of voting for evil. But Bob, the, the entire electoral process is rigged that's what we've learned in 10 years that the entire process and again look what, the, what the hillary clinton did to bernie sanders i mean how much more rigged can a primary be how much more rigged can a party be the, the the fact of the matter is that we in the tea party have been fighting for 10 years to reform the political process so we can get people in in government who represent us but it, it's, it's very difficult because it's all about power and money. And when it's about power and money, people will do some pretty nasty things. And they've done lots of nasty things to all of us in the Tea Party. But we're getting there. But we really would help if we had President Trump on our side. And the Republican Party has done a great job of keeping him away from the people who really are on his side. And so, you know, the, the fight continues but we're celebrating 10 years of tremendous achievements and stories that people just really don't know, like how we did take on the IRS and, 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 and win. And, and how the targeting of the Tea Party in 2012, Bob, is, is, was the first election that they rigged. 
the same people. Bob Mueller was the FBI director when the T- when the IRS targeted the Tea Party in order to make sure Barack Obama was reelected in 2012. Donald Trump's reelection was just the follow through. They rigged the 2012 election, so let's rig the 2016, and that's why we're fighting, you know, for equal justice. But most people don't know about the Tea Party's role in the IRS targeting. The truth about it that it was really a political operation designed to make sure we didn't unelect Barack Obama. You're right. Yeah, you're right. A lot of people don't know that. In fact, most people probably don't don't know that. Those who are dialed in or are paying attention do, but we do need to shine that spotlight, and that's why I'm glad to have you on. Tom Zawistowski, uh, the uh, uh, president of the We the People Convention, the actual 10th anniversary of the Tea Party is coming up, of course, on Tax Day, April 15th, on Monday. That's the 10th anniversary. Um, and, uh, Tom, I would love to talk to you again then and maybe kind of spotlight that a little bit more, but I really appreciate you coming on. I want everybody else to know uh, that if you uh, are looking for more information about the Tea Party and about the anniversary, go to those two. In fact, I'll give you a couple of pages. Go to uh, wethepeopleconvention.org, wethepeopleconvention.org, and you can also get more information uh, on Tom's page, which is uh, Talking Trump with Tom Z. I'm sorry, Tea Party Talk with Tom Z. Big important, Tea Party Talk with Tom Z. Yeah, and let me just say one thing, Bob. We're asking people who uh, to fly their gas and flag. The snake flag with the "Don't Tread on Me" on it. Right. We're asking you to fly it this weekend to acknowledge, you know, the, the efforts of the Tea Party. And I'll give you a little hint: if you don't have one, go to WeThePeopleConvention.org later today, and we're going to have a thing where you can download a PDF and print one for yourself. Awesome! That's a great, great uh, idea, and it's a great message to uh, to share with everyone uh, this weekend. Tom Z, thank you so much for coming on, my friend. We'll talk to you again very soon. Great, thanks, Bob. You got it. Tom Zawistowski joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. I told you we had a lot of great guests on the uh, uh, line today. We'll come right back after this on AM 1420, The Answer. Short segment to wrap it up, as always, at 10.56, but I'll squeeze a call or two in here if I can. TJ in Cleveland has been waiting very patiently for us to finish our cavalcade of uh, interviews. TJ, go ahead. Yeah, you know, Bob, last week something very very tellingly happened. Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, came to New York to have heart surgery. Now, the left has been telling us for a long time now that their socialized medicine of uh, England and Canada and Cuba are much better than what we have. Why did Mick Jagger come here to have it done? Why didn't he have it done in Toronto or London or or Havana? (laughs) Because he wouldn't be able to get an appointment for another eight months. Yeah, And and, and another thing real quick. Nobody likes to talk about that, do they? No, they don't. And I contracted at the Cleveland Clinic a few years ago, and I noticed there were people from all over the world coming to the Cleveland Clinic to have procedures done. And I noticed back then they didn't go to Toronto. They didn't go to Cuba. They didn't go to England or or, or, or Germany. They came here to have it done. Now, the left wants us to throw this system out because they say it's inferior. I mean, you got to figure it. And one other. Well, they don't think it's inferior. They don't think it's inferior. They just think it costs too much. And on that part, they're right. But they they think the answer to cost. Yeah, they think the answer to costing too much is to let the government take it over, which of course would then cost all of us more in our taxes. And as we pointed out, um, you know, put so many people in lines that you would take eight months to be seen for uh, you know for your you know your 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 strep throat, and by that time it's going to be too late. So uh, yeah, that's that's the problem with it. It does cost too much. 
need to get back to the capitalist marketplace and allow people to buy their insurance across state lines, allow companies to compete one, with one another to truly drive the cost of health care down. But that's another subject. And one other quick thing, Bob, this uh, Muslim congresswoman, what she said, some people did something. It doesn't surprise me because I know people that aren't Muslim that say the same thing. And I even know one that believes that it was actually Bush and Cheney and not airplanes and Muslims, but a space-age harp weapon that brought down the Trade Center. (laughs) So, you know, it's not just Muslims. We've got, you know, people like that everywhere. Yeah, well, you're right, but it, it is a little, and thank you, my friend, for the phone call. That's uh, TJ in Cleveland. Uh, the, the the reason it's a little bit more prominent is because this particular Muslim is in Congress. This is a member of Congress mi- minimizing and diminishing uh, the the role uh, that, uh, you know, of course, uh, the Taliban and the other Muslim terrorist groups played in uh, the worst terror attack in American history. But, yeah, it is interesting, and it? Uh, some people did some things, you know? That's like saying the D-Day landing was, well, some people went to the beach, you know, as if they were there to have a good time. Unbelievable. All right, that's all the time that I've got. Thanks for being a part of the show. Great conversations all the way around today. Stay where you are. Mike Gallagher is next. We'll see you tomorrow on the Bob France Authority. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com